temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what do the disciples mention? Look at the pretty buildings. Yes. And uh, they were impressive. Um, Josephus said that there were stones up to 60 feet in length in the temple. I understand that we have found, I know this sounds impossible, but I have read in several sources, we have found stones as large as 42 feet by 11 feet by 14 feet that weigh over 1 million pounds. Now, how they did that, I don't know. I assume the pyramids probably had some building materials that were incredibly heavy and large. So I don't know. We think we are so technologically advanced, but a few of those things in the ancient world, we might have a rough time with even today. You know, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot to be learned from some of these guys. But it was then an extremely impressive, impressive building, and an impressive complex of buildings. And Jesus says, what's shocking? There won't be one of these stones that will be left on another that won't be torn down. Now, Jesus, I believe, was talking about what the Roman army was going to do to the temple and to the city of Jerusalem 40 years later in the year 70. But, of course, the disciples don't know that. So they are bewildered and perplexed, and they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's typical for the disciples to ask things privately. They did that pretty often in... in uh, into the Gospels. Uh, it's hard to know what they were thinking. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, bet on much of anything, nor do I think it matters. You know, were they thinking, were they thinking that when the temple was destroyed, it would be the end of the world and the second coming? Maybe. Or are they distinguishing them, those things in some way? Or are they thinking about a different kind of, of end of the age and, and coming? I don't know. I know what Jesus did in his answer. I don't know that Jesus ever cared much what the question was, so I don't know that Jesus' answer necessarily defines the meaning of the question. But I know that in Jesus' answer, Jesus distinguished the destruction of Jerusalem from the end of the world. Almost everybody agrees with that, especially if we take 24 and 25, which I think we should, as one speech. You know, it's when Jesus had finished those things, 26.1, like we have with all those other big speeches in Matthew. So I think we've got to take 24 and 25 as one unit. There are debates about where we get the transition from the destruction of Jerusalem to the second coming and the end of the world. But almost everybody agrees that it occurs somewhere by the time we get to 25 or somewhere in chapter 25, it really stretches our imagination to imagine that the parable of the virgins and the talents and the judgment scene where we have separated the sheep from the goats is all talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So any way you want to look at it, Jesus distinguishes those two themes. I really don't care what the disciples were thinking because I don't really know.
All right, what do you have to say about that? They had never asked an intelligent question up to this time about <laughs> and having proven that they understood. <laughs> so it's hard to believe here that they suddenly, oh, well, you're going to die and come back? They're not even willing to right. say that he's going to die, let alone his second coming. Right. So I don't see that happening, but it could be. Yeah, good point. Yeah, the disciples have shown a great deal of uh, lack of understanding, and there are other questions that they've asked repeatedly, so I agree. The uh, first part of it, tell us when will these things be, that yes. makes sense. Yes. Because he said it's going to be torn down, not one stone left on another. When's this going to happen? Right. And then whatever else they threw in there, I don't know what <laughs> what they were thinking. Yes. All right. So could would they be thinking of a literal coming of his kingdom? That'd be the other thing. If they still wanted him to be king, then that might mean the. You know what's, what's But I don't know why that would mean the destruction of the temple. That would mean the destruction of the yeah. the Roman rule. But because the end of the age could be the end of the age of foreign domination over the Jewish nation. Or and any king yeah. starts a new age and a new. <laughs> and the sign of your coming is, you know, this is we're going to okay, we're sending up smoke signals on that day. Russian will be king, you know, whatever. Yeah, I do think I it's know. hard to know what they may have thought. And since I'm more concerned about what Jesus' answer was, I've not worried about it a whole lot. Cameron, I'm going back to the stones thing. Um, that was all destroyed and everything. Whenever they have pictures of, whenever I've seen pictures of that area, they have still a wall that's left that they call the praying wall that was supposedly from the original temple. And that's, I see bricks stacked on top of bricks. What do you say? Yeah, well, I don't think Jesus was literally trying to say there would not be any single stone on top of another one. You don't see the temple shape still and, and the temple really still practically being there. It was torn down. So, yeah, I think... To make that literal is perhaps, uh, you know, more than what Jesus had in mind. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah. Good question. And isn't the Wailing Wall actually like part of the foundation? I have no idea. Of the temple? Uh, Maybe so. Like propping, literally propping up one. Uh, Maybe they excavated to get to the Wailing Wall. I don't know. There are whales there. <laughs> <laughs> They probably shipped those in. Moby Dick could <laughs> Big canal. Yeah. Long canal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could we could probably get a big debate going on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, how about four to eight? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Well, he warns them about certain things that were going to happen, and uh, actually certain things that were going to happen that weren't necessarily the signs of the end of Jerusalem in my judgment. Um, and he talks about what in 4 and 5? False Christ. Yes. There's a danger of being misled by people coming in Jesus' name and, and saying they were, they were the Messiah. And people usually, usually use 
you know, troubled times to deceive. You know, in difficulty, it's tempting to follow anybody who claims to be the Savior because we're desperate and grasping at straws. So Jesus is giving a little shepherdly guidance here. And he's saying, you know, really be careful that you're not caught up in these excited delusions of the crowd. The thing, oh, there's the Messiah, oh, there's the Messiah. And we know historically before Jerusalem was destroyed, there were all kinds of false messiahs that drew, drew away Jews to follow after them. And very much because of that. Comments and questions on four and five? He warns about what happening in verse six. Rumors. Yeah. Wars and rumors of wars, but how should they take that? Not frightened. Yeah. Don't be panic stricken by those things. In fact, that's not yet the end. There's going to be those things, but those aren't signs that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And what else will there be in verse 7? Nation against nation. And? And? Famines and earthquakes. Famines and earthquakes. Uh, there was a great earthquake that struck Phrygia in 61 and leveled Pompeii in 63. You know, we know about some a few years before Jerusalem was destroyed. But this isn't the end. These are the beginning of birth pangs. You know, history is full of troubled periods. History is full of wars and rumors of wars and false messiahs and earthquakes and famines. And we shouldn't get that out of perspective or panic into imagining that, oh, this must be it. You know, there's still, these are the beginning of birth pangs. Well, that's like saying this is the beginning of the woman's labor. So she's still got the whole labor to go through. And for most women, that takes a while. You know, so there may be an extended period of labor before the end of the temple. So it's really ironic that these things that Jesus says were not even signs of the destruction of Jerusalem are taken today as the true signs of the end of the world or of Jesus coming or whatever. They take it out of context twice. Out of the context of the destruction of Jerusalem and out of the context these are not the signs of the end. These are just things that are going to happen during this period that you're not to let yourself get all worried and upset about. We tend to overreact to any news. Everything is going to, oh, woe, doom and gloom. The end's upon us. You know, sky is falling. You know, for generations, for millennia, people have been doing that with nearly everything that comes along. And he says, don't panic. You know, that's just part of what happens throughout those, that period. Comments and questions. Is do you think that verse eight is talking about the timeline more or the severity of the events? Maybe more timeline, but it may not matter much. Maybe the same almost. But he's just saying there's going to be a lot more to go through than just that. You know, the the period right before the destruction of Jerusalem had a lot. Of, of labor pains. It's a lot of, of just difficult things for the Jews particularly. Other comments? Alright, 9 to 13. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. 
Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. All right. Now, he's shifting from what he has been talking about to talk about what kinds of things? Personal. Personal to who? To the disciples. Exactly. You know, the things in 6 to 8 would pretty much affect everybody. Wars, famines, earthquakes wouldn't make an difference if you're a disciple or not. But here are some more specific things that will occur to the disciples that, that really target the disciples. And what all is going to happen to them? Yeah. Kill, hated, Doesn't sound very pretty. They need to prepare for some serious opposition, it looks to me like. And how will some of them react? Some of them will fall away. Yes. Some of them will just abandon the Lord completely and betray their fellow disciples. You know, uh, they, they will, uh, you know betray one another, you know, because you depend on your brethren. And when they give in, then they just turn their back on their brethren. And what will what will others do? Endure. Others will endure. What's the danger for some others? Love will grow cold. Yeah, that's another problem. Some may cool off and become useless for the kingdom. Not that they totally abandon the Lord, but they just lose their zeal and their ardor because of all the difficulties. There's a danger that some in verse 11 would be misled by false prophets. That's another thing that would happen. So he really deals with three different bad reactions. When the adversity comes, some would fall away, some would be misled by false teaching, and some would cool off and become useless for the kingdom. In contrast, the one who endures to the end he will be saved. That's what you got to do. Deliberate, steadfast faithfulness to God. You know, Jesus does not deal so much with chronology in this question as he does with the responsibility of the disciples to stay faithful. Comments. Despite the persecution, the worldwide mission must go on. The church's response to the persecution must be declare the message of the Lord. And was the gospel preached in the whole world in the first century? Mm -hmm. How do we know? It says so. <laughs> You're right, it does. It says so actually more than once. Once we're all delivered, it's more of a I can't remember. One of those shuns books. Colossians. Colossians 1.23. Colossians. Yeah. You wanna, don't want to shun that book. Um, I, that the uh, gospel which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's what it says about it in Colossians 1.23. In Romans 16.26, he... Uh, 
uh, says, but now it's manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. So that's another passage. Another one is Romans 10, 18. Their voice has gone out into all the world and their words to the end of the, wor the world. He uses a passage that in the original was talking about how uh, the evidence of God's creation is everywhere because you can see the sun, moon, and stars, and he applies it to how broadly the gospel had been spread in the first century. So they really did do that. But that's what they should do. They should keep preaching. The church's response to persecution needs to be preach the message. That might not be our first response. I think that's, that's challenging to think about doing that. Comments and questions? What's the end? I think probably the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple. In this context. Everything he says up to verse 34 happened within that generation. Alright, well I'm going to stop here and uh, we'll work starting in verse 15 next week. We'll move.